0: Sometimes I say to my sister, what would you do if I sang a high, clear note right now?
1: You've said that to me, actually.
0: It's actually an important question. Everyone's I always would applaud. like, I would be impressed, yeah. right? I would be delighted, and it's like, that's all I want. Yeah.
1: Even though, actually, if someone who does that did that, I'd be like, please don't do that.
0: Yeah. I'd be like, hey, so I actually have to end the call.
1: I'd <laughs> be like, oh, I just, yeah.
0: Sorry, there's just, hold on one second.
1: What was that? Sorry. <laughs> wait did, did you hear her what's your name
0: my name is augusta my name is eva and this is a phenomena podcast thank you guys for being here it's so nice of you it's literally so nice of you it's thank you for taking
1: time so out of your busy day to join us on this spiritual journey should we start with an affirmation Take time to sit in your body and and really experience the words as you say, I am worthless. I am going nowhere.
0: (laughs) Take time to sit in your body and really think about why it hurts and what you did to lead to that point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Blame yourself. Blame yourself. Tell yourself you forgive yourself, then laugh in your own face. Gotcha. Throw,
1: throw white wine in your own face. <laughs> Apologize. <Wait. laughs> throw white wine in your own face.
0: But I've done it.
1: What are we normalizing today, ladies? Throwing
0: white wine in our own faces. Green mousse, guava juice, giant snake birthday cake, large fries,
1: chocolate shake. Chocolate shake! shake. <laughs> That's a good affirmation. <laughs> that is. We should do that again. What was it? Uh, green mousse, green guava, mousse juice. guava juice.
0: What I knew it 30 seconds ago.
1: You need to re-listen
0: to it. <laughs> Green mousse, guava juice. I haven't watched it since I was a kid. I don't know Something how that came birthday back.
1: Birthday
0: cake. Wait, I'm gonna look it up. Something snake birthday cake. Big fries chocolate. Giant shake. snake
1: birthday cake.
0: Giant snake birthday cake. Big fries chocolate shake.
1: Large fries chocolate shake. I'm Large just fries look chocolate shake. Um, fairly odd parents theme. And I'm gonna cut all this out so it sounds like you did it right the first time. You know um, Or like to, the second time you. you did. Well, I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> okay <laughs> the answer is obtuse rubber goose green moose guava juice giant snake birthday cake large fries chocolate shake so you had it totally okay. right we were fucking there we were so there so this week i honestly have no idea if we made it through that intro because that was tough but we're just oh, having a lot of fun i had a diet coke like a whole diet coke like in the first three seconds of the show i basically shotgunned <laughs> the diet coke this, this week, week we're going to be talking to you about a, i'm so sorry No, you got it. Please do it. Please, God, fucking deliver me from having to do the intro. So we wrapped up our last arc and
0: we're beginning a new journey, a new series, a new beginning, a beautiful new start to um, like a theory and a practice and a praxis and thoughts. This week, we're going to be talking about ghosts and the law, what we're colloquially calling ghost
1: law. (laughs) that's when uh, an old west sheriff clanks out in the middle of the uh, street and it's like I can't whistle (laughs) and he's like there ain't room enough in this ghost for two of us (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to do something that didn't make any sense
0: (laughs) what (laughs) <laughs> okay what i like about that joke is that it makes so little sense that it actually should be illegal and i could take you to court for it so in a way
1: <laughs> so ghost law as it's known in this podcast at this podcast only basically means any time that you know written articles of government or most often court decisions uh discuss the realm of the supernatural in to any capacity
0: yes so i would like to clarify an important point up top ghost law mm-hmm. is not the litigation of ghosts it is not like yeah, construction law ghost. right this is we're not mm-hmm. talking about cases of people suing dead people this is cases that in some, that you can do yes but it's not considered ghost law
1: it's Um, not considered ghost law it's a state law that would be so funny if we were like yeah we're just gonna be doing a state law for an episode yeah we're just talking about suing dr seuss's estate (laughs) which i am doing right of course the
0: phenomena podcast versus the united states of america versus the state of dr
1: seuss (laughs) it's a mexican standoff (laughs) and now we're back in my ghost town we don't have jurisdiction I can't. I'm trying to do a whistle. Okay, go on. I can't whistle Uh, because I'm too uptight. (laughs) My whole face is just like, I always have cyanide poisoning. (laughs) I can't whistle. I'm from New England. (laughs) Literally.
0: (laughs) So ghost law is law, which can, I mean, it's a term that it's not, we didn't make it up, but it's basically made up. It's not an existing thing. What we're considering for the scope of this episode is that ghost law is law in which the supernatural plays a minor, like a minor or major role in the litigation in terms of whether the litigation Mm -hmm. is won or lost. So essentially court cases and decisions. Yes. In which whether the ghost exists or not, or whether the ghost stories are true or not has an important role in the court case being decided.
1: Yes. The ghost is in some way, um, a legal actor or um, a circumstance that is considered by the law to be happening. So
0: I think we we identified three major situations where we see this, right?
1: Yes, and and before we get into the three major situations in which we see this, I do want to say uh, we're going to talk about America. A lot of ghost law happens in other places, um, but we're going to talk about America again. That's the scope of this podcast. And then also, we're not going to talk about um, the way that like the like native spirit, quote unquote, like appears in American lo- uh, legislature um because that is like a whole episode worth of stuff that we can talk about another time
0: beyond the scope yeah beyond the
1: scope so another day yeah
0: the major places where i saw it i think Mm -hmm. big first one biggest one haunted houses
1: yeah absolutely so that is the biggest place to start yeah i think we should start there don't you think Totally. What did you find on 100 Houses? Well, I closed all the pages. I closed all the tabs on my computer, like an idiot, before opening this. But I'm... I can tell you about Stambofsky versus Ackley, if yes, you'd like. Yes, that's what I was going to bring up. I'd love that. Hi, um, this is editing Eva. Um, I'm just here to say that in the upcoming segment, I get a few facts wrong. Um, the haunting took place between 1978 and 1989, um, and the case was argued in 1991. And the correct spelling and pronunciation of the plaintiff and the, this defendant is Stambowski, Stambovsky, V-Ackley Ackley, A-C-K-L-E-Y, not Sandofsky, and it wasn't in the sixties. Uh, but I stand by the anthropological analysis that we did and this episode is still really good. I know it's a bit long, but please stick around because you will laugh and you will learn a lot and I love you and thank you for listening and enjoy. So Stamboski v. Ackley, um, also I, which I think is called like the Ghostbuster case in, um, in like legal, whatever, uh, in like everyday parlance, Uh, That is how it's known, even though it has nothing to do with Ghostbusters. So in Nyack, New York, there was a house and a woman named Ackley lived there. That was her last name. Don't remember her first name. And she experienced between 1967 and 1970
0: or so. That is not correct.
1: A lot of symptoms of haunting in this home. So she said that...
0: um... There were ghosts interacting with members of the family that grandchildren were receiving gifts of baby rings from ghosts that Mm -hmm. like disappeared later and that the ghost would wake up her daughter by shaking her bed and scaring her and like shouting at her and that when spring break arrived, her daughter was like, I don't have to wake up early. I'm going to sleep in and her bed wouldn't shake. So it was like the ghost wanted them to stay in the house. Those are the major Thank things you. That, she, that she talked about. Absolutely.
1: Yes. So they interacted with these ghosts Um, and it wasn't entirely negative, right? So it wasn't right. like, even though it is scary to imagine that there's a force in your house shaking your bed and stuff, it wasn't like they were breaking things or throwing people out the window or anything. It was like leaving little gifts and shaking your bed. Shaking your bed, not so good, but not like inherently violent. Yeah. Um So she started writing in to local newspapers and so she like contributed these stories talking about how um, the daughter when she had spring break like announced to the house like hey I have spring break I don't need to get up like please don't shake the bed and they didn't shake the bed and um, the stories about the rings coming and going. And she even submitted a story about it to Reader's Digest. I guess Readers Digest like solicited haunted house stories. Um, and she submitted to like one of their columns this the story of her house. So that was like I said, the sort of the precedent for the court case later, because then she went on to sell the house and she and the real estate um the realtor, the real estate. People they knew about these because it was locally famous, and so they sold the house for six hundred and fifty thousand dollars to a man from New York City. And of course, the guy from New York City he didn't know that in Niac and the local area that this house was pretty famously haunted. I mean, there's if you hadn't read that one Reader's Digest article, there's no way anyone outside of the town would necessarily know this. Um, and so he paid a down payment of like 30000 or $40,000. Then he learned. Do you know how he learned? Did he learn from the paper or from a local?
0: Mm, I think someone told him.
1: Okay. So somebody told him, well, that house is really haunted. So then he didn't uh, go through with the closing. Um, he was like, fuck you. Like, you should have told me this. This is a, um, what they call a...
0: Fraudulent misrepresentation. Thank you. Yeah, I got you.
1: This is a fraudulent misrepresentation of the state of the home because one of the things you do have to disclose when you sell a home is a very vague like principle called stigma. Mm. Um, which like we're all familiar with that word in like the social sense and like what it means to us. But in the context of selling real estate, you're supposed to disclose if there's something really significant about the house that would affect your life living in it. So the big example of this often is like famously there's like that house that they filmed breaking bad in, like that Mm. was the family's house, um, or the outside of it was. And so people like drive by it all the time and like take pictures and like try to come up your walkway and take So you have to disclose something like that. Like if you lived in the Drake and Josh house or something, they'd have to disclose that because that affects your ability to enjoy living in the house. So stigma is like the section under which it was argued that the ghost, that the haunting um, symptoms should have been disclosed in the sale of the house. And they ended up winning the case. Um, And it was determined that there was a fraudulent misrepresentation and they had an estoppel put on the the sale, which an estoppel, E-S-T-O-P-P-E-L, is basically like when you're allowed to break a contract, like Mm. without facing any of the consequences outlined in the contract, this contract being sale of the home. So that's like monumental.
0: Totally. I think what's interesting about that story, and I think I'm especially glad that you brought up the stigma concept, because I think basically what is being argued here is the, the social afterlife of the events of this home are so significant that it will affect my ability to live Mm. here.
1: Mm -hmm. Like
0: that's the thing that unites the breaking bad example and the Drake and Josh example. It's also commonly the case of like, I think this is from what I could read. Um, there are other examples of this like sometimes if if there are like sex offenders living nearby like this is a big deal with the sex offender registry if there's like a very mm-hmm. famous
1: if there's mm-hmm. like lots
0: of violence nearby or mm-hmm. um, if there's like been a terrible violent crime like it's the mm-hmm. site of a famous murder or something like that yes.
1: Because there are differing laws about whether you have to disclose an, what they call an unnatural death, which also the legal definitions of that are like very hazy or a murder. And there's some states that you don't have to. But in all states, if you're directly asked and you're aware of the information, you have to answer to the best of your awareness. So that would be a state like Massachusetts, for example. In Massachusetts, if you buy a house and it was the site of a grisly murder, they don't have to tell you. But if you ask them, have has anything bad happened in the house? They have to tell you.
0: Right. What's interesting about this is that, yeah, we're seeing the way that ghosts as a form of social life and ghosts mm. as truth and ghosts as a form of going back way back to our tourism and ghost tours of New York City episode which is very connected to this one how those three things come together right right It's not just that this guy didn't want to live in a haunted house it's that this house was haunted to the point that it was a feature right like the how ha- the haunting of the house had created uh differing financial circumstances for the previous owner, Mm -hmm. because she had made money and fame off of the house being haunted. And she had been doing haunted tours and like media stories. And I think what the court said, based on what I could read of it, was that because she had participated in creating it as a haunted house to the public... Mm. And the house had been not marketed then as a haunted house, there was like, that's like a predatory selling practice.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. This is where it interacts with the idea of the ghost, really, is like, it's kind of shot, it being the decision. So the decision was a, um, it was a majority decision, meaning three out of the five ju- – he actually lost at first. Sorry. I should have said that. Sandofsky, who's the guy who bought the house, actually lost at first, um, and then he appealed it. And then um, at appeal, it went before five judges in the Supreme Court of New York, and um, or the appeals court. Um, and the majority decision was only uh, issued by three of the five judges. So it's actually like – that's as close as you can get to not winning when it's a majority decision. Uh, rule case so the decision is what i mean when i say it so the decision comes up really close to the idea of it being haunted without ever saying that the house is haunted because i think casting a vote in this case uh deciding to side with sandowski is already to a certain degree like a little bit polemic i mean a mm. judge is a judge an appeals court judge is an elected position so it's very much a political position so it's already like there's some there's some bizarre weight to casting your vote to be like oh this guy should have been informed that his house was haunted before he bought it so i think that's part of what makes like the decision the the language of the decision so delicate and what the language of the decision really says is because she made it public It's real. And because other people in the neighborhood believe that the house is haunted, he should have been informed, which is so interesting because it's like it codifies the idea that if enough people believe something is true, it becomes essentially true. And it's one of the only times that that's written in the law because – This isn't criminal law, right? In criminal law, there's a finding of fact. This is contracts, which is like an idea of like good faith kind of more. So it's like you'll never find in criminal law somebody being like, well, everybody believed it. So it was as good as true. That's not the case. That's only going to happen in a civil court. It's civil case, we're talking about like defamation or something. Yeah. And even in a defamation case, that's going to be evidence that supports a case of saying that something was bad. It's not going to be in the decision. They say, well, a lot of people believe it. So it's true. I mean, that's crazy.
0: Right. I mean, I think that in from what I know of contract law, from having worked at a law firm for six months and listening to some podcasts and doing some research, not a lawyer, but, you know, former legal assistant, the idea of value is really important.
1: Mm mm hmm. When
0: you think about contract law, the Mm. the potential value or the perceived value of something is constantly being adjusted and changed and in flux Mm. and dealt with by the way that the world perceives that thing, which is Mm. why you can do something like sue for defamation or, you know, loss of income, perceived loss of income, because you can project that you should have been making this much. But because someone said this horrible thing about you, you weren't booked on tours or shows or cruises Tour. or whatever, and yeah. so you lost income because mm-hmm. the val you know the value of your services was rendered right. moot, right? So it's interesting to think about the idea of the truth value of ghosts affecting the value of the house because by everyone mm-hmm. believing it to be true, the house was valued differently. So what this guy wanted back is he wanted his deposit back. Like yes. that's what he is that's what he's doing court over. Because
1: what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he didn't pay for it. He didn't pay for the house. He didn't go to the closing. He, vi- yeah, he was like, fuck no, I'll take my chances in court violating this contract, basically. Um, right. And then they took him to court for whatever the terms of violating the contract were. One, he appealed. Um and go back. Yeah, it's just so strange. Like it almost touches the idea of like a tulpa, which if you've ever seen Supernatural, dear listeners, the episode with Paris Hilton. Um but yeah, tulpa is like a pretty commonly known supernatural phenomenon and that's the idea that something can, an an entity can be essentially created out of like concentrated willpower of people thinking about it and like sending energy towards it in that sort of way um so you can basically like manifest an entity um so slender man we talked about a little bit like that would be sort of the classic like contemporary tulpa but i believe that the term does originate in like a true spiritual um belief uh or like a spiritual practice that has to do with like it's in a specific spiritual belief that is um in the caribbean that has to do with like building an altar that is composed of some specific physical elements but also performing these acts of service and ritual to this um effigy like it's like an altar and it's an effigy and like in performing these ritual acts of service to it that is part of how you give the power to it mm. in order for it to become an entity. Yes. So I, that my understanding is that that's the origination of the tulpa. Yes. Um, and a lot of it has to do with like ejaculating on it, bleeding on it, like these like giving of your self and your own natural power to create something that has its own power which is then independent of you but occasionally should you behave in a certain way it will follow your wishes. Um but the concept has since evolved to basically talk about anything that you can that like you can collectively agree into being. Hmm. Yes. I think I follow.
0: So in so applying that to this, it being like the fact that everybody collectively agrees that this house is haunted actually mm-hmm. practically affects what the house is experienced. Mm-hmm. In both a social perspective as in you don't want to move into the haunted house, in the neighborhood and be the guy living in the haunted house. And also Mm -hmm. a financial perspective as in, you don't want to be the guy who now is like, sorry, we're not doing ghost tours here anymore. But what's interesting is it doesn't even touch. I mean, this is obviously they had to be super careful with this in the decision, but it doesn't even touch on the idea of if ghosts are real or not. Mm -mm. It's just, do people believe the house to be haunted? Right. Exactly. Which I think is fascinating.
1: Because he could have chosen to go a few ways, and he could have easily lost, and a lot of people do lose when they make these cases about um, hauntings, because even though this is a precedent that's often cited, it um, these cases are usually lost, and the reason they're usually lost is because... The stigma avenue is the avenue that you can take that's actually successful to win one of these cases. If you want to lose one of these cases, what you would argue is that it's a danger, right? And then the judge has to issue a decision that says whether or not it's real. And the judge is never, ever, ever, just ever, ever, never, ever, 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 ever going to issue a decision that says ghosts are real, right? right? And that's not something that, like, I would expect them to do. Like, I don't see that as any kind of, like, discrimination though we'll get into that with our with our other topics um like when the law treats spirituality like when is it discrimination and when isn't it because obviously sometimes it is um but yeah you can go the route of the same way that you would sue over there being mold that wasn't disclosed or lead paint that wasn't disclosed lead paint is something that like always 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 in america has to be um disclosed to the buyer or the renter but so if you try to sue that way you lose right because you're like There's a ghost and it's harming me. And then the judge is like, there's no such thing. Instant L. (laughs) Grow up. Right. Whereas if you argued all my neighbors think my apartment is haunted and I can't get a babysitter. Right. Boom. Stigma case and you win.
0: Yes. And you know what's interesting about this is that after the case was decided the house has gone up in fame and value because of the case to the point that yes. now it's no longer even operated as a personal like estate. Residence. Residence. Yeah. It's operated as like a, a haunted like
1: a, a museum.
0: Yeah, a museum. So like the judge was right.
1: Yeah, the judge was right. Like the judge was right. There was a there was a failure to understand there yeah, something was wrong. It's also strange because like it's kind of like he was arguing that they should have sold it to him for more, but he wasn't really saying that. He was like, they should have disclosed this. But you can also kind of look at it from a perspective of like, so you got a really good deal on a house that could be worth a lot more because you could right. make money off of it. Also, like, right. why did you agree to pay 650 because you're from New York City? But like, right. why did, a bond it all trader. comes back
0: to New York City real estate. Yeah. And to being a bond yeah.
1: trader. Yeah. Was he? Yeah. That's funny. So that's Sandofsky v. Ackley or Ackley v. Sandofsky, um, which is basically the precedent for the idea that people have now that people, quote unquote, have to disclose if someone was murdered in your house. Right. They don't. They absolutely don't. You can ask them, was someone murdered in this house? And in most states, but not all, they have to give you a truthful answer. But like if your house is super famous as the site of a murder, then they they do have to tell you that if it's going to affect your quality enjoyment yeah right. enjoyment and, of the home. and if it affects the property value of the home i mean that's the thing that's interesting about yes. it is that like this yes
0: this makes the house worth more like that's yeah. why i mean as you're saying the go it's 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 a judgment on the material conditions of, like it's a judgment on the social conditions of the world and how that affects the contract mhm which is sounds so ephemeral but it's basically just like A judgment on whether people believe ghosts are real. Mm
1: -hmm. And the answer is they do. So you said you came across some really interesting stuff about intellectual property and ghost stories. Would you give us a rundown of that? I would love to. So did you do you know the movie The Conjuring? I do know the movie The Conjuring. It's based on the real experiences of a family who lived in central Connecticut like yes. fucking most movies yes it is the conjuring
0: is uh it's like a franchise it's more than one film and it's about uh paranormal investigators named ed and lorraine warren who are real people who as eva said lived in central connecticut and worked as a husband and wife team in uh, as real life ghostbusters essentially now In 1980, there was a book published called The Demonologist by a man named Gerald Brittle. Brittle has sued Warner Brothers or brought a suit against Warner Brothers for $900 million, claiming that he basically owns the right to the Warrens' story being told because he had an agreement with them that prohibited them from entering into a motion picture deal without his consent. So what he's claiming is that because he wrote a book about this couple in 1980 and published it, that now their life work is his underlying IP, his underlying intellectual property, because he's already published it. And so he's saying The Conjuring, the movie, is a... Well, he's saying two things. One of The Conjuring, the movies are ripoffs of his book but also that even if they're not ripoffs of his book he still has the rights to that story and the story can't be retold without telling him because he's entitled to basically first first dibs on that ip now this lawsuit was filed in i believe 2016 and it was heard in 2017 warner brothers was obviously not happy they kept trying to have it dismissed
1: so interesting i hadn't heard of this at all
0: yeah, I, it was in like the Hollywood so, Reporter um, and stuff. Would you
1: mind reminding me when, when did The Conjuring, like the first movie, it's like 2003, when did it go into production?
0: So the movie, The Conjuring was released in 2013, which meant it was probably in production for a couple years. And I know that the um, producer, mm. who's a guy named Tony DeRosa Grund, wrote the original treatment, which is like the pitch sort of, and the titled the project, The Conjuring. And for... 14 years he tried to get the movie made without success
1: he wrote it before the 21st century even came and then right it took him a long time to get it pitched and then probably like whatever two years however long it takes to make a movie yes. so this had been in the work for a considerable amount of time before this guy put together the sorry remind me his name who put together the lawsuit uh the guy who Warren. put together the
0: lawsuit was named brittle gerald brittle brittle
1: yes <laughs> he was no um so yeah so that's interesting because it's like he wasn't informed 14 years of like pitching reworking production well so here's the thing okay
0: the producer who wants to get this story made he teams up with another producer named peter Safran and two sibling writers named chad and carrie hayes they wrote um the remake of the house of wax throughout the reaping they this is their and butter yeah so they uh they took the conjuring which this guy the producer tony rosa had created a treatment for and they shifted the perspective from this other family the family being haunted to the warrens which are the people who are the ghost hunting team, right? So they when they mm-hmm. took it on, they shifted it to being from the perspective of the people who are living in the house to the perspective of the people investigating the mystery. And to do that, mm-hmm. they interviewed Lorraine Warren, who was the wife in the paranormal investigating team, many, mm-hmm. many times over the phone to clarify the details. So this story was not written oh. according to their claim through the mediating influence of this book, but directly from the life experience of the Warrens. It, according to them, it has nothing to do with the book. The book is overlapping IP because it concerns the same life events, but unrelated because right. there's no—they didn't intermediarily pass through that, right?
1: Right. So Lorraine and the husband's name is Bob Roger uh, Ed Edward Ed. Bob, so Lorraine and Ed Warren they own the intellectual. You they own their own life rights or whatever, and so they've separately. I'm just trying to understand. They've separately licensed their life rights to both the book author and to the producer by talking to them over the phone all the time, and but the book author is arguing that his book is the quintessential definition of the story and because he has movie rights to his own book, he is owed movie rights to this movie that's about the same events as his book. Yes, essentially.
0: Yes. He's saying that it's copyright infringement, conversion, Mm -hmm. conspiracy, it's like a huge lawsuit, right? That because it's this exact exactly what you said. He claims that his book is the definitive account of their lives, and that when they entered into I don't know, interviews for that book, they had a deal saying that they had exclusive rights to use what he calls the Warren Mm. case
1: files. Right. Okay.
0: Yes. And so he's saying that the Warrens knew when they wrote that book with him, that this would be the definitive life rights version. And that by bypassing him in his book to go to Warner brothers they have created a situation in which his IP has been violated and that he's owed a huge amount of money for this because he wrote the definitive work on it. Right. there's a lot of other Mm. subsequent claims or, um, you know, additional Mm -hmm. claims made in the suit, um, Mm. because that's how lawsuits work. Uh, but I think that's the essential thrust of it. Mm -hmm. And the judge Warner bros was like, nobody has a monopoly over life rights Nobody has a monopoly over real world stories right. and events, right? Anybody can tell true life stories and events oh. anytime
1: because they really happened. I didn't know that.
0: Right, right, right. And that if Brittle doesn't have documentation showing that he entered into an exclusive agreement with them, and if they don't have anything showing that they were basing this off his book, which they claim they don't that they're just basing it off what really happened mm-hmm. the same way that a million people can make a movie about like the JFK assassination or like world war II. You just can't make them based off the same original oh, book.
1: Oh, okay. They're arguing that it's that public basically. Like it's not like making a, it's not like making a movie about somebody's personal life, which right. you can't really do. Right. It's like well, making a yeah. movie about public
0: events. They're arguing that it really happened. So they're allowed to tell the story of it from their perspective.
1: Oh, because it's not a story. It's what really happened. Because it's real. Oh, that's so interesting. So what's the status of the litigation or negotiation at this time?
0: Warner Bros. settled. uh, And it's actually such a crazy story. Okay. So it's also New Line Cinema was attached as well. They were part of the suit. So it's Warner Bros., New Mm Line Cinema, this guy, Gerald Brittle, So Mm -hmm. they, so he sued in 2016. I'm reading through this to make sure that I get this absolutely right. Brittle, the guy and New Line, the, you know, the company that is the like smaller subsidiary of Warner Bros. That's doing this Mm -hmm. released a joint statement and I'm going to read you the joint statement. So this is obviously through their attorneys. Mr. Brittle has agreed to dismiss his lawsuit against Newline and its affiliates with prejudice as the parties announced on the record in open court last week. Mr. Brittle realizes this filing was a mistake and that New Line has no liability and did nothing wrong. Newline has remaining counterclaims against Mr. Brittle and the par- parties are working to resolve those as well.
1: Wow.
0: Now here's where it gets fucking crazy. At the same time as this happens- Someone begins to email studio execs claiming that the Warrens, the family they're basing the movie off of, were involved in a brutal decades long affair, like an extramarital affair with a woman that began when she was 15 years old, that the Warrens together were hiding an extramarital affair that he was having with a child because it was getting bad for their public image. Right, which it would be. So Brittle claims that he wasn't in control of the lawsuit, that there was someone behind the scenes manipulating him to do this lawsuit. And do you know who he claims it was? It was Tony DeRosa-Grund, the original Conjurer producer who tried to get things produced for 14 years, who was cut out of the project.
1: And he was the one emailing about the affair, too.
0: Yep. He's been in his own legal battle with Warner Brothers for years and Brittle claims that he's the person who hired lawyers and funded litigation because this is incredibly expensive. This guy didn't make his money. Yeah, of course. Brittle yeah. didn't make his money off of this book that nobody's read. So he right. says that this producer was the one who helped draft the complaints, responded to discovery requests, instructed attorney not to produce documents, which is like the most illegal thing you can do in litigation is like Super not most give the documents thing you can name. do. Yeah.
1: Yes. Not produce discovery. Yeah. So
0: here's a statement from him. Based on a review of text messages between Mr. DeRosa-Grund and my attorney, I understand that he even threatened my attorneys that if they sent information for me without him seeing it first, they would be fired, says Brittle in a declaration. So a declaration to the court. When my attorney informed Mr. DeRosa-Grund yeah. that I was the client and needed to approve discovery responses, Mr. DeRosa responded, good, then get Gerald the fucking pay you. And then stated, oh yeah, he doesn't have a pot to piss in. And I forgot. Insane. Insane.
1: That's really insane
0: right. So That's really insane. And then DeRosa Grund the producer sends in a document to the Hollywood reporter saying that he wasn't a puppet. he wanted to enter into this suit. He believed this. this is a campaign by new line against me because I knew the truth about these people. I knew that they're sexual predators. I'm the ones who've been try- who's been trying to raise the red flags blah blah blah. So it's super ugly. And, like, are they sexual predators? Crazy. I don't know. They have the court that case hasn't been even decided yet. But I think for, for our purposes, what I think is really interesting mm-hmm. about this lawsuit, besides the fact that it's obviously incredibly juicy and crazy and insane and amazing, is the idea that real events are no one's intellectual property. And for that to be true, you have to believe that what happened with the Warrens was, once again, real enough in a social capacity that it was real to the people it was happening to.
1: Right. I mean, they really went to the house. They really did the set up the investigation. Exactly.
0: They did. But I think that you could They really got a call. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that you could,
0: there is the perspective possible that this book that presents them as successful paranormal investigators is Mm -hmm. the definitive spin on that story because it presents a story with like a ghost arc, even though that's also what they claim Mm -hmm. happened. Mm. Crazy. So that's the intellectual property thing that I was talking about. Super interesting. Yeah.
1: That's interesting.
0: That's just insane. Okay. And so that was, that was my ghost law is when, the question of what paranormal investigators did and how that can be optioned becomes a question of truth and veracity. Right. What did you find? I know that you had so, something else.
1: Yeah. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about just really, it's like not as, um, there's not as much like analytical, analytic meat to it, but um, analytical meat, I don't know what I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> like analytical meat. But, okay. So did you know, in California- there's something that's legal in California that's not at all legal in New York. Weed. Or in. Me- <laughs> that's paranormal. Sorry. Are you aware of any paranormal practices that are legal in California but illegal in New York? And honestly, most states?
0: Um, uh, oh,
1: advertising psychic services? That's correct. Fortune telling? Palm reading? They are illegal in the state of New York and in many other states. So I'm a let me just read New York, <laughs> the New York Consolidated Laws, Section One Sixty Five Thirty Five, Fortune Telling of the New York Penal Code, right. A person is guilty of fortune telling when for a fee or compensation, which he direct never is a man, but which he directly (laughs) or indirectly solicits or receives. He claims or pretends to tell fortunes or holds himself out as being able by claimed or pretended use of occult powers to answer questions or give advice on personal matters or to exorcise, influence or affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, evil spirits or curses semicolon, except that this section does not apply to a person who engages in the afore described conduct as part of a show or exhibition solely for the purpose of entertainment or amusing. Mm. Amusement. Fortune telling is a class B misdemeanor, which means $500, 90 days in jail. It's illegal. Right. Good thing I got paid in food and weed. (laughs) Right. So hold that in your mind. And now I'll read you two more fortune teller licensing laws. This one is from Massachusetts. This is section 185 of uh, uh, Title 10, which is like a bunch of boring stuff. No person shall tell fortunes for money unless a license, therefore, has been issued by the local licensing authorities. That would be your city. Said license shall be granted only to applicants who have resided continuously in the city or town in which the license is sought for at least 12 months immediately preceding the date of the preceding the date of the application. No such license shall be transferred or assigned unless otherwise established in a town by town meeting action and in a city by city council action and in a town with no town meeting by town council action by adoption of appropriate bylaws and ordinances to set such fees the fee for each license granted and under this section shall be two Dollars, But in no event shall any such fee be greater than $50. Whoever tells fortunes for money, unless licensed under this section, shall be punished by a fine of not more than $100. Wait,
0: okay, I'm sorry. So what you're telling me is that fortune telling in New York is illegal unless
1: your local... No, this is New- Massachusetts. This is Massachusetts. Okay, I'm screaming. I'm screaming. Okay, okay. So okay, in okay. Massachusetts, so it's interesting to see the two the two different cultures that we have there: Massachusetts yes. versus New York. And yes. so I can only speak to cultures that I'm at least somewhat familiar with, having like lived in worked places for a certain amount of time, right? So those two, and then I'll read you the th- a third one. But so those two, you can see already two different cultural things that we are addressing. The first is in New York, the exception is for entertainment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So – and in Massachusetts, the thing that they're worried about – so in New York, what they're worried about is accidentally um, curtailing entertainment. They right. don't want to do that. They, right. they don't want to do that. In Massachusetts, they're worried about people traveling there to become a fortune teller. They're worried about traveling salesmen, traveling showmen, traveling right. frauds. It's very local.
0: They're like, right. you if you you're from the next town over
1: – You got to wait a year because
0: you're not really from here. We know you're not from here. Whereas in New York, they're like, please don't sue the production of Wicked. Please. Literally. (laughs) Literally.
1: In New York, they're like, okay, so now I'm going to read you a third one and you just tell me what you hear. Okay. Okay. And you can also guess where this is from. I'm sure it'll be very obvious from the fact that I selected it. So this is section 54.312 of the Criminal Code Offenses offenses Affecting the Public Generally Division 1 it shall be unlawful and this was written in 1956 by the way um i don't know when the other ones were written because they don't say on their website it shall be unlawful for any person to advertise for or engage in for a moneyed consideration the business of chronology phrenology astrology palmistry telling or pretending to tell fortunes note that because the other ones it was all because the new york one it says it's It's specifically legal to pretend well in the new york one No, it says you can't pretend... For, it, it's, it says that it's fraud to do it. It's either right, right, fraud or right, right. entertainment, right? Because it says right, right, right. you can't pretend to be able to talk to spirits. This one says you can't talk to spirits and you can't pretend to talk to spirits. Right. Um. Either with cards, hands, water, letters, or other devices or methods, or to hold out inducements, either through the press or otherwise, so no advertising, or to set forth his power to settle lover's quarrels, to bring together the separated, to locate buried or hidden treasures, jewels, wills, bonds, or other valuables... To remove evil influences, to give luck, to effect marriages, to heal sickness, to reveal secrets, to foretell the results of lawsuits, business transactions, investments of whatsoever natures, wills, deeds, and or mortgages. To locate lost or absent friends or relatives, to reveal, remove, and avoid domestic troubles, or to bring together the bitterest enemies, converting them into staunchest friends. But nothing herein contained shall apply to any branch of medical science or to any religious worship. And there's no exception to that? Well, medical science and religious worship, but you can't get a license. Well, I was going to say Louisiana, but there's no way. That's Louisiana. Ugh, knew it. So that's Louisiana. That's actually the city of New Orleans. But um, so what's interesting about that is, first of all, it is so motherfucking specific. So you can tell that they really knew exactly what practices they were trying to outlaw, which is like voodoo stands where you buy a spell or curse to cause these really specific things to happen. So listed. It's amazing. It's so listed, right? But then right at the end, they have to save their ass. They say, but don't worry. Your religion actually isn't, like, forbeared by this. Yes. And it doesn't say that you can't, that... It says that the religion is exempt from charging, for, uh, from, from it being illegal to charge for these services. Right. So it doesn't say, but that doesn't mean you can't do these things pr- um, privately or as part of a religious service. You just can't charge for them. That's not what it says. Right. It says that religious services can charge for these things. Yes. So the Catholic Church, voodoo priests, all these people who... Um, are so powerful in Louisiana, absolutely still can charge for all of these things. Right. Just that an individual who has no spiritual – you can't show up and be like, I'm an atheist and I'm also a palm reader. (laughs) I believe in like a secular form of astrology that really deals with more like a Jungian archetype kind of a situation. (laughs) So disgusting. So – yeah. So isn't that interesting? So I just thought it would be interesting to talk about, like, just a, really quick before we close, because obviously, like, I don't know, it's just interesting cultural comparison. So you have California, completely legal. Wait, there's no laws about it in, in California? San Francisco, you have to have a permit. But um, there's otherwise, I think there's a couple other places you have to have a permit. That's but amazing. They're trying to have that repealed because they consider it to be discriminatory that in this one city there's, like, a permit, and they're basically, a lot of people see it as, like... um fine farming or whatever that's called in the city just like you know what i mean like they issue too many parking tickets or whatever yes so they're basically like there's so many psychics if they all have to pay 50 dollars, that increases the city's revenue by so much like that's basically like a ploy so they're trying to have that repealed yeah so california completely legal new york state completely illegal unless you're like on stage though obviously new york city full of fortune tellers. right then massachusetts you can have a permit, but you have to be, like, a good old boy. Like, you can't actually be an immigrant from, like, Haiti or Puerto Rico and, like, have a spiritual practice that involves fortune telling and then right. get money from that. You have to be, like – You have to be a pilgrim. Yeah, have to be, like, an old-timey pilgrim. <laughs> you like, have to
0: have, like, a buckle hat. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You literally have to have a buckle hat. You have to be like on the like middle school lacrosse team. Right. Or you can't
0: do it. If you have more than 15 cousins in the surrounding area, then fine. You can tell a fortune.
1: Right. And then in Louisiana. Yeah. And like also. Yeah. So like no traveling fraudsters. And then in Louisiana. I think part of it is to protect against people flocking there to start a business to do that. Because I think in the 50s there was a lot of panic about the counterculture in New Orleans um mm-hmm. which there continues to be because there it's just such a strange like relationship between the conservative government and the um not even liberal just bizarre people that live there <laughs> um <laughs> with peace and love um i think there's a lot of panic about counterculture there and yeah. like all these people, like, all these people of color, all these queer people, like, flocking to the area. And I think one of the things they do to try to stem that is, like, to outlaw a lot of, like, business practices that Mm -hmm. were popular with those groups. Um, But then, obviously, they couldn't... They either... It's just interesting, because it's, like, either they felt like they couldn't stop the, the diocese from doing exorcisms and from doing things like um basically like a prosperity gospel Mm -hmm. like illegal prosperity stuff that is not illegal but like very like sick and twisted in my opinion like prosperity gospel stuff or were they trying not to have a riot because they were basically outlawing voodoo like right or both it's hard to say yeah
0: or both yeah i mean it just seems like the once again It's an interesting question of truth and veracity, right? Like Mm -hmm. why is it that you make an exemption for religious practice and even allow people to charge for it, but not but don't let people reg like operate businesses which do that in a hedonistic or superficial way? Right. Because you don't feel that you have the ability, the right, the backup. The moral standing to dictate that religious practice is false, but you're able to point out – like, but you're able to outlaw commercial practice because you're able to say that that is unethical, even if you can't make a truth claim about it. Fascinating.
1: It's so weird because it's like it almost says – well, in some of the places. I think in New York, it does say this isn't true, so you can't say that you're doing it. That's fraud. It's like snake oil. But in Louisiana, it kind of says like it's illegal to tell someone their future. Right. Unless it's part of your inherent sp- spiritual worship that's protected under already protected under federal law.
0: Yeah. It puts like a lot of truth value on it. It's like this is yes. so important that we actually have to regulate it because otherwise people are going to misuse and abuse this. Right. Right. Whereas in California, they're just like,
1: you guys have fun. Yeah, they're like, uh, run your business or whatever. Like, do whatever, bro. Cult murders, yeah. get after it. Cult murders, get after. Right, I know it's just, yeah, and like, and even something like the Massachusetts Penal Code. Right, it says that the license is two dollars, not more than fifty, and practicing without a license is a one-time fee of a hundred dollars. Right. In New York, you can get actual jail time, right. three months of actual jail time and a misdemeanor on your record. Insane. And a fee of $500. Wow. Like, what were they so... I guess they were... That was another place that I think they were afraid of people, like, flocking there to have, like, these, like, sham businesses. I guess.
0: It's weird, though. You'd think it would... Or I'd think it would be more like New Orleans, where you have such a plethora, I don't mm-hmm. know, of cultural practice... Mm -hmm. That you would want to regulate the business and not the um, thing itself.
1: But I guess it depends when the law was written, too, Right. right? Because 1956, very, very, very much there's voodoo culture in New Orleans. There has been since, obviously, that's like a huge hub of the slave trade. Right. But depending on when that law was written in New York... Right. I mean... It could have been before there was a large enough population of – because in New York, it's not really voodoo, right? It's like Santeria or that's my, like, whatever um, anecdotal experience of uh, fortune telling and other, like, for sale spiritual practices. I know that's, like, super loaded in New York. But basically what I'm saying is, like, there may not have been Cubans and Puerto Ricans in New York City when they wrote this law, in which case they're talking about, like, Italians pretending to be Romani with, like, a big – you know, it's, like, just so interesting yeah. to think about. Like, I wish I knew when that law was written because the fact that the New Orleans one was written in 1956, I feel like, gives me a lot of information. Right. Um. But this one doesn't. Right. I will tell you it's right in between fraudulent accosting, which is, like, you can't hold people, and criminal possession of stolen property in the fifth degree, which is pretty funny. That's interesting. Because it's technically an offense related to theft because it's... Because fraud is theft.
0: Right, because you're you're frauding someone out of their money.
1: You're selling something that doesn't exist, yeah.
0: Huh.
1: And yet there are
0: so many people who operate psychic and other businesses in New York and even advertise them.
1: Right, so either what's happening there. So here's another thing that's interesting. So another thing that New York kind of let itself out of, I think that's different in in the way that New York has like a commercial um, culture that's different than the commercial culture of New Orleans. So first of all, there's a ton of psychics in New York, right? And so either what they're doing is working illegally, lots of people in New York do that, or they're working as entertainers and they're paying taxes on their income. That's what I was going to say. What the church and voodoo practitioners in New Orleans are not doing, though I'm sure voodoo practitioners experience a lot of, like, government persecution for other different reasons, and um, I'm sure they get harassed by the cops and stuff. They don't pay taxes, though. Right. On that income. Right. So that's really interesting. New Orleans, Louisiana loves to not tax people. Right. Huh. Whereas again in Massachusetts, there we see another opportunity that Massachusetts took. Okay, well this can be taxable income. Right. They love that. You could right. make them come off of all sorts of shit in Massachusetts as long as you pay your income taxes.
0: Right. That's so interesting. I can't believe it's completely legal in California. I mean I can mm-hmm. and I do.
1: You should look at the LA Times article about the protests. I mean, they're not large scale protests, um, but about the protest actions about repealing the the uh limitations in San Francisco. Mm. It's pretty interesting. Mm. It didn't like blow my mind, but it's just such an interesting little culture piece. Yeah. Okay, I wanna say two more things. I don't I know I see that we're like reaching towards the time, but I just wanna say two more things. One, yes. did you catch that one of the things in the New Orleans um fortune telling law was phrenology
0: yes and i was thrown
1: right phrenology and palmistry i guess both just being the idea that they look at your body and tell you things that your body says about you right and then the second thing i want to say about california actually that i forgot until right now that's super interesting actually necromancy is legal there huh specifically the law allows for communication with and raising of the dead this is such a
0: godless state to be
1: honest i mean pop off severely frankly crazy. but it's crazy like, there are states who would have a civil war before yeah. necromancy was legal yeah i mean louisiana and massachusetts both being florida i wonder how that got written into law it's a
0: very good question my friend do you have any psychic services that you would like to advertise before this podcast concludes oh wait ah, ha, ha, ha. Ah.
1: entertainment purposes only ah. i know i'm like now do we have to start saying that on our podcast episode because it's technically pretty set of new york city
0: um this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and if you take any of the, levi- in the advice that we give you you are as eva once said lobotomized so <laughs>
1: You
0: say some problematic
1: things. Uh, yeah. Um, we love you. Um, upcoming episodes, we're gonna be doing more Ghosts in the Law. We're gonna to try to take on a little bit of talking about how the law treats the idea of like the Native spirit, quote unquote, which is what that phenomenon is called in legal anthropology. Um, we're going to talk about the law of raising the dead and disturbing burial sites and other sort improper in, in disposal of the body and. Dean baby. Yeah, how that treats the spirit um, in the law. Then we're going to do some on necromancy. We also have a live stream episode coming out, Date TBA, um, about Danny Phantom because we're huge geeks. And because, Why bisexuals for bisexuals. And because the people requested it. Because the people, the people in the live demanded. stream wanted it.
0: And I mean, what are we going to do? is not give them the- what they want?
1: Oh my God, if we don't do an episode. Do
0: haunted weekend.